0: It's great to see you all here this morning. I know we've got some folks who are watching online as well, so good morning uh, to you. My name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here, and if it's your first time, welcome to Connect. There's a a wonderful story, some of you may have heard of it. Um, This happens back in the late 1800s in New York City. A man by the name of Joseph Richardson. uh, Joseph Richardson, he owned a strip of land. This strip of land he owned in New York City was five feet wide, only five feet wide, and 100 feet long. So that's about the width of our uh, preschool hallway. If you're picking up your kids this morning, that's about five feet. 100 feet is about uh, the width of this building. He, uh, he owned this piece of land, and next door was a large piece of land that a man by the name of Hyman Sana purchased with the uh, intention of building um, apartments, building you know a big set of apartments on this, this large piece of land right next door to the small strip of land that Richardson owned. When Joseph Richardson heard that this guy had bought this land right next to him, he said, hey... I've got a great opportunity for you. If you buy my small strip of land as well, you can actually increase the size of the apartments you're going to build. And I will let you have it for the very reasonable price of $5,000. Which back in 1882 was probably quite a large amount of money. But he said, $5,000, you can have my land as well. Well, Hyman returned and said, no. Uh, Sorry, Sana returned and said, no, I'll give you $1,000. That's as high as I'm willing to go. Well, Richardson was really upset by this, really frustrated. They went backwards and forwards, and, and Sana wouldn't budge. So he said, All right, fine. Then I'll keep my land, and I'll build a building on my land. True story. This guy managed to get planning permission to build a four-story building on a piece of land that was 100 feet long and only five feet wide. I have a picture of it here in New York City. This is the property that Mr. Richardson built. <laughs> this one here. We have another picture from side on. You can see it right there. It's five feet wide. He, he he built it so that the other guy's property would lose all of its windows on the side. Now, no one could see out of the windows. He found a loophole in the building code that allowed him to put bay windows on his building. So he was able to extend it from a small five feet to a whopping seven feet wide. So here's the floor plan. So there are four apartments in this building. They are seven feet wide along the entire 100 foot length. He lived in one of them till the day he died and he rented the others out and this wasn't the official name of the building but it became known locally amongst the people of his time as the spite house (laughs) because he built it just to spite the guy that wouldn't pay the extra four thousand dollars to buy his land it's funny you know we hear that story this morning we we chuckle thinking how crazy what kind of person does something like that But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, I wonder how many of us have built some kind of imaginary wall, some kind of structure, some building in our lives just to spite that person who did us wrong. Last week, we kicked off this brand new series, which we're calling it Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And we're looking at the idea of what does it take um, for us to exist, for us to live in emotionally healthy relationships. Because when it comes to relationships, whether it's with our spouse, our parents, our kids, the people we work with, the people we live next door to, as followers of Jesus, there's a lot at stake. If you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, there's a lot at stake because our founder, Jesus, he gave us some pretty clear instructions about what we are to be known for. You can read the words of Jesus in John 13, 34 to 35. He says, So now I'm giving you, that's us, a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This, this love for one another, This healthy relationships, this is supposed to be what the church of Jesus is famous for. This is supposed to be the distinguishing mark of followers of Jesus. This is how you're supposed to know that there is a church in the community because there are a group of people who love others really well. So as a result, in this series, we're talking about what that looks like. As followers of Jesus, what does it look like to love others well, to to work at our relationships with one another, with our friends, our neighbors, our family? Last week, we started off, and if you weren't here, we learned last week that words have power. The words we speak have power, the power of life and death. And as followers of Jesus, we should be using our words to build one another up, to encourage. We actually learned last week that studies show that for every um, one negative, discouraging words that we hear, we need five positive, encouraging ones to kind of cancel it out. So we should be working five times as hard to speak life and positive and words of encouragement to one another than words of discouragement. But this morning, in considering the factors involved in an emotionally healthy relationship, it's not just the words we say to one another. I want to spend a little bit of time addressing the conflicts we have with one another. So not just the words we speak to one another, but also the conflicts we have with one another. Now, the truth is that unless you live on a desert island, every one of us at some point will face relational conflicts. And let's be honest, Tom Hanks lived on a desert island, and even he kicked Wilson out of the cave. So, I mean, it's, even if you're on a desert island, relational conflicts happen. It could be your kids not doing what they're supposed to do. It could be a friend you've heard has been speaking badly about you behind your back. Maybe a colleague at work did something, and you got the blame for it. And, and these things happen on a regular basis, and they cause this conflict in our lives. And if we, especially as followers of Jesus, are committed to to pursuing emotionally healthy relationships, we have to decide how we're going to handle that conflict when it occurs. It happens all the time. It could even be as simple as a spouse not carrying their fair share of the load around the house. Help me. I don't see the (laughs) need. sit there while i do all the work i had the kids the whole morning because i was cleaning well stop it already ray seriously get up and help me no get up no ray listen you know what you don't understand i work hard all day i got a lot of stress i come home and i'm great if all the conflict in our lives had a laugh track going on behind it you know we're arguing with our spouse I've been telling you for months to hang that thing on the wall you still haven't done it I'll do it tomorrow <laughs> that doesn't happen does it now in real life when it comes to conflict there is no laugh track it's awkward it's uncomfortable it causes tension In fact, like Mr. Richardson of New York, oftentimes we start to build walls of resentment, constructing a monument in our life to the injustice that was done to us. In fact, there's a word for something like that. It's called a grudge. A grudge. A grudge is simply getting mad and staying mad at someone. So if any of you were like, oh, I'm I'm not sure if I have a grudge. No, here it is. If you get mad and stay mad, you are building a grudge. In fact, the dictionary definition of the word grudge is a persistent feeling of ill will or resentment resulting from a perceived injury or offense. So here in that definition, I wonder if some of us are examining our lives now and are kind of just seeing a little sign of something in our lives, a little bit of a grudge that we've allowed to become built up. Some of us, are still holding against that person something for what they did. Some for days, some for weeks, some for years. And why do we do that? Because grudges feel good. It feels good to, to have this grudge, at least at first, because it makes us feel justified. But the truth is, it doesn't stay that way, does it? You don't often hear of a happy grudge story, because it's always detrimental to the relationships. Because getting mad at someone and staying mad at them, it doesn't affect them, does it? It affects us. At the end of the day, the grudge really does very little to the other person, but it affects us way more. Here are a few of the problems I think are associated with, with allowing a grudge to develop in your life. The first is that the more you hold a grudge, the more it has a hold on you. The more you hold a grudge, the more it has a hold on you. Paul was writing to a, a church in Ephesus, and we can read some of the things he wrote in uh, the, the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament. And he talks a little bit about this idea of grudges and, and the effect it, and the impact it can have on us. It says in Ephesians four twenty six to 27, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. The word for devil here is is accuser. It gives a foothold to the accuser. And what that means is that the longer we hold a grudge, the, the longer we hold on to it and we don't resolve it, we're actually allowing the accuser to come and basically set up camp in our lives, set up camp in our minds. We've built a spite house and the accuser, has moved in, and he continues to accuse, telling more stories about the person who your ill will and resentment is towards. And over time, it gets deeper and deeper because we've allowed the accuser to move in, to take root in our lives. And we've all done it, haven't we? We've, we've been alone, we're driving, we're in the shower, whatever it is, and we're thinking about that incident which get more and more frustrated, more and more angry over what the person did. And sometimes the person has no idea. They're just living their lives. But for us, that grudge is just getting stronger and stronger. Last uh, Sunday after church, uh, my family and I—we had a birthday party to go to in Peoria. So Casey and I, and uh, Will and Emma, my two of my kids and Will's uh, girlfriend—we were driving from Washington out to Peoria. We were driving down 24 towards the bridge there, and. Honestly, to this day, I still don't know what I did, but I must have done something because suddenly this car kind of swerves around me and then pulls in front of me and slows down. And, and I can see, we can all see uh, that he's, he's making some gestures. I mean, there's a guess as to what gestures they would be, but they weren't. He was like kind of doing some hand movements and we're like, is he waving? Do we have something stuck in? He's like, but I can tell by the, the veracity of his gestures. He's not happy about what's happened. And then off he goes, he speeds ahead. But then um, as we're going down towards the bridge, he would slow down. Down and we'd catch right up with him and then the gestures came again and this guy's obviously really mad and I said to Casey I don't know what I did do you know what I did she goes I don't know what you did none of us in the car had any idea but I'd obviously done something judging by the gestures maybe it was one of you and you were waving if it was <laughs> you were just really excited to see me I don't know so if that was the case come and tell me I'll cut this illustration for the sake of service but as we got up the hill towards Peoria the other side he indicated to turn right so I was like okay he's but As we were catching up, he slowed right down. He wouldn't even turn right until I got alongside of him. And as we came alongside, all of us looked over, and he was like, So still, I don't know what any of those gestures mean, but I don't think he was happy. And we were kind of chuckling about it for the rest of the drive to, to our friend's house in Peoria, because we were oblivious. We had no idea what we had done. But this guy was so mad. I bet he got home and he was still slamming doors and you know, we had no idea. And sometimes I think our grudges are like that. Someone upsets us or offends us and now we get angry and we're doing the gestures and we're slamming the doors and and they're just carrying on driving because they've got no idea. And that's the challenge, isn't it, about grudges. The more you hold a grudge, the more it has a hold on you. You know, another problem that we'll run into when we we face these particular things, these these grudges, is that we have this natural instinct, don't we? Our first tendency is to return evil for evil. Our first tendency is to return evil for evil. If we've been wronged by someone instantly, we're trying to think, okay, how can I get them back? What can I do to retaliate? I think um, this story has been shared from this platform before. But there were a few uh, years ago a situation with a... uh, a particular character from the nativity scene. I think he was a wise man or a shepherd or something. He was a large uh, nativity scene character that somehow, uh, it, it belongs to one of our staff members and it ended up uh, maybe in my office or something. So I was like, oh, they're trying to play a joke with me. So I put it in the back of their car and then before we know it, it ended up somewhere. And this kind of went backwards and forwards. It ended up in someone's house. And it just kept, because that's how retaliation works. It never gets to a point, does it, where you're like, oh, yeah, you win. Good job. Yeah, that was the best one. Let, let's not do this anymore. More because you've clearly won. No, this this carried on until one day uh, this particular wise man ended up in my bathtub upstairs in the bedroom, in the bathroom off of our bedroom, and um, Casey didn't see the funny side of it quite as much because I was the one who'd been instigating this. And then uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how much the story I'm allowed to tell. They came into our house. They came into my. <laughs> Have you seen how the crowds And they came in and they saw it like it is. So, it, so that was the point where it ended. It did finish right there. So um, I'll not say who the other staff member was involved, but if Whitney does preach, you may get to hear the story from another <laughs> perspective. But that's the problem when we want to return evil with evil. It's like those, those situations where we're always trying to get one under the back and it just escalates and escalates. And there's just no end in sight, is there? Until a wise man ends up in your bathtub. And then you're like, okay, we've gone too far. (laughs) Paul addresses this idea... He's, he's written to the Ephesians, and Paul's brilliant. You know, he's, he's, as he's writing to these churches, he's got such wise counsel and godly advice that he's given to the people that live in these cities. But I think, unbeknownst to Paul at the time, it's timeless. Some of what he's writing about specific situations in specific communities still helps us as followers of Jesus today. So he wrote that to the, the church in Ephesus, and he's also got some great advice he writes to the church in Rome. Paul writes a whole letter called Romans, and in Romans 12, 17 to 18, with the idea of not repaying evil with evil, listen to what he says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. And I love this next verse. He says, do all that you can. To live in peace with everyone. Because he's kind of saying, listen, you're never going to be able to live in peace with everyone. That's just impossible. But you can do all that you can to try and remain emotionally healthy in your relationships. That's really interesting. Because when Paul is writing this letter to the people of Rome, if you study it a little bit, you get to understand more why he is writing what he's writing. So at that time, this is after Jesus has, has walked on earth, has lived, he's died, he's, he's risen again, and now the church is starting to grow in the New Testament. This is kind of like 100 AD, um, and uh, maybe a little earlier than that, but the, uh, the Jews who lived in Rome at the time, this new emperor comes in, and he just doesn't like the Jewish people, so he, he kicks them all out. They're all asked to leave, or they're told to leave the city of Rome. So actually, for five years, five years, they've been disbanded. They've been sent away from the city of Rome. After five years, things change, and they're allowed to come back. But what's happened is, over those five years, the, the non-Jews, they're called the Gentiles, people who didn't grow up as uh, Jewish people, had come to follow Jesus. So the church was growing in Rome, and it consisted mainly of people that weren't Jewish but were followers of Jesus. So when the Jews came back to Rome, they settled back in the community, and um, some of them, many of these Jews who moved back, they too, despite growing up in the Jewish tradition, had come to the conclusion that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. So while still being Jews, they made the decision to follow Jesus. So they arrived back in Rome. They tried to integrate with the church that's already there. So you've got a group of people who didn't grow up as Jews following Jesus. You've got another group of people who did grow up as Jews also following Jesus. And now they're trying to build the church together. And the reason Paul's writing this letter, because there was so much disunity and arguing and evil fights going on. They would argue over the Sabbath, when you should celebrate the Sabbath, what day it should be. They would argue over what kind of foods you could and couldn't eat. They would argue over whether or not you should be circumcised. Much of which had very little to do with following Jesus, but a lot to do with their their traditions growing up. So it's causing all sorts of disunity in the church. And Paul writes the letter of Romans to explain the, the big message of what Jesus taught. And how love should always triumph over these minor disagreements. And the crazy thing is, as we read this, we realize, wow, things haven't really changed, have they? Throughout history, we can see how people in the church were still arguing and fighting over different ideas. Last week, Casey and I, uh, we went to see the movie Jesus Revolution. It's out at theaters right now. I'm going to be completely honest. I'm not a big fan of Christian movies because sometimes they're kind of a little bit hokey. They're not done very well. But this particular one, I thought, was really well made. It was a great story, and it's a true story. It's based upon an amazing period of time back in the late 60s, early 70s, where, where, where the country was divided. The Vietnam War was happening and people were divided over whether or not we should be fighting in that war. The civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, that was exploding and growing. And there were people in the country who were divided over whether that should happen or integration should happen or not. So so the country was incredibly divided. And at the same time as this movie portrays, the church was divided. Because the movie is is brilliant. It shows how basically there was this, this culture shift going on because the squares... And the hippies were butting heads. (laughs) There were people who were more traditional, suits and ties, you know, very straight laced. And then you got these hippies coming in with no shoes on and long hair. And they both loved Jesus. And they were both trying to follow Jesus. But you could see this tension going on. And it's a brilliant movie about how this spiritual revival takes place and love conquers all and, and it triumphs over the disunity and Jesus wins. And I think we find ourselves in a similar place today in history. There's division in the country. There's division in the church. And I think Paul's words are as true today as they were in the 70s during the time this movie was set as they were back in Rome in, uh, just after the time of Jesus. Don't let this division drive you against one another. Don't return evil with evil. This isn't the Jesus way. That verse, do all that you can to live in peace with one another. And the tough part about that is I think we feel like, well, if I don't return evil with evil, they'll get away with it. What they did to wrong me, if I don't wrong them back, then then they get away with it. Someone's got to hold them accountable. Well, you're right. And Paul addresses that in the next verse. He says, dear friends, verse 19, never take revenge. Leave that To the righteous anger of God, for the scriptures scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. We have to be willing to say, God, what they did was wrong. That situation, that was wrong. And I'm going to trust you, God, that as the, the, the true and righteous judge, this won't go unnoticed. Now, God may not deal with it the way you think he should deal with it. But we have to trust God that God is aware of what happened. So instead of holding a grudge as followers of Jesus who are striving to have emotionally healthy relationships, what should we do? What choice are we left to? If we can't fight evil with evil, if we can't hold on to that grudge and build that spiked house in our lives, what alternative do we have? What should we do? Some people don't like it when I use the F word in church, but I'm going to use it. We've got to forgive. We've got to forgive. <laughs> some of you are like, where is he going? Some of you find that word more offensive. <laughs> you're like, oh, I wish he said the other <laughs> Forgive. Because <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? We have to choose to forgive. And I know that some of you right now, because you've been thinking about that thing, that grudge, whatever it was, it happened recently or a long time ago, and in your mind straight away, you're like, I don't want to forgive because our flesh, our, our human nature, we fight against it. We fight against the idea of of forgiving because it just doesn't seem fair. But listen to what Paul continues to say in another letter he wrote to another church, the Colossians, Colossians 3, 12, 13. God has chosen you and made you his holy people. He loves you. So your new life should be like this. Show mercy to others. Be kind, humble, gentle, and patient. Don't be angry with each other, but forgive each other. If you feel someone has wronged you, forgive them. Forgive others because the Lord forgave you. Not only is Paul saying we should forgive others, he gives the reason why we should forgive others. Because God has forgiven us. Now I get it, we can't control our feelings, they're just there. But we can control our actions. I can't control if what someone did hurt me and I feel betrayed. But I can choose to forgive whether I feel like doing it or not I can decide I can take the choice to break down that wall to knock down that spite house that I built up the grudge that I've held right now If you read the news, you'll know that the president is trying to put into place this this plan to cancel some student debts, And it's uh, very controversial. Some people really think it's a great idea. Other people are uh, are very against it. But um, I'm not here to comment on that one way or another. But I want to use it as an illustration. Because if you read about it in the news and online, it's being referred to as the student debt forgiveness plan. That's what it's being called. The student debt forgiveness plan. You see, the word forgiveness here is being used in the right context because forgiveness literally means to cancel a debt. That's what forgiveness, so when, when we decide we're going to choose to forgive, we're actually choosing to cancel a debt. And that's what makes it so hard, isn't it? Because there are some people, some of us here this morning, we've been hurt by someone. Someone maybe that we loved and trusted. We, we just can't move forward until they pay us back. They've, they've created a debt, and, and things won't be right until that debt is, is taken care of. But if we're honest with ourselves, really honest, we have to acknowledge that whatever it was that they stole from us, whatever we feel they stole from us, they couldn't repay even if they wanted to. They may even be sorry and remorseful, but you can't move forward because you are waiting for them to repay you something that they'll never be able to repay. So Paul's saying, we need to forgive. We need to cancel that debt. And I get it. I know this sounds like an impossible task. Some may say this morning, but Dave, if you knew, I understand that. But maybe with what we're about to do, this will help you frame that, that challenge together. I have to ask Case to pass me up a piece of communion, because I forgot it. We we take communion as a church uh, on the first of every month, or the first Sunday, thank you, the first Sunday of every month. And normally we do it during worship, but knowing what I was going to speak on today, I thought we'd take it together. So before I um, go on, I'll explain just really briefly, because maybe you're here, and it's your first time here, or you're new. Here at Connect, um, we have uh, a communion that we allow anyone to join us in. So if you feel comfortable this morning joining us in communion, uh, you are welcome to do so. There is a little uh, cup with some bread and juice beneath your seat. So you can take that now in your hands and, and hold on to it. We're going to take it here in just a moment. So just hold on to it for now. Because we do this on a regular basis at Connect. And it is good to do because it's a, it's a reminder every time we do this of the great price that Jesus paid. The, the bread, it represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The cup, the juice, uh, the wine, it represents his blood that was spilled for us. But this morning, I want to think about it a little deeper. Because we're talking about this idea of forgiving. We're talking about this idea of of not letting a grudge stay there in our lives towards somebody who's hurt us or wronged us. We're talking about the idea of having to forgive that person. And it just seems so hard to cancel such a great debt. But Paul said, didn't he, in Colossians, forgive others because the Lord forgave you. What we're about to do represents more than just Jesus dying. The reason behind why Jesus died, the reason behind why God sent his son to die in our place, is that the the things we've done wrong in our lives, everything we've done wrong, every wrong word, every wrong action, every wrong thought, we can never be good enough to cancel that out. We would have to be perfect to create a relationship, an unblocked relationship between us and Father God, because he's perfect. And he knows that. He knows we'll never be good enough. He knows we'll never be able to not do enough bad things. So he took matters into his hand. He loved us so much that he chose to send Jesus to die in our place, which we're going to remember here in a moment. And because Jesus died in our place, we can come to God now and we can say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done. I can never do enough right to make that up. So thank you, God, that you sent Jesus to die in my place. He was the perfect sacrifice. And because of my relationship with Jesus, because, God, I'm saying sorry to you, because I'm asking Jesus to be a part of my life, you've forgiven me of everything. You've canceled the entire debt. You've wiped the slate clean because of Jesus. It came at a great cost. Your son had to live and die a horrible death in order to cancel that debt. But that's how much you loved me. That so you were willing to sacrifice your only son to cancel my debts. The debt that these wrong things in my life had created between me and you. So let's take the communion together with um, maybe a fresh understanding of what that means to us this morning. We'll take the bread. Father God, this, this bread that we're eating together right now, this represents your son's body. You sent Jesus, your one and only son, to die in our place. And God, as we eat this bread on a regular basis, we join with Jesus followers throughout the world and throughout history who have done this on a regular basis that we may never forget the great price that you, you paid and sent in Jesus. And now, we're going to take the juice together as well. Lord Jesus, we love you so much, and we are so thankful this morning. So thankful that as we drink this juice together, it is a reminder, a constant reminder, that you, your blood was shed. Your life was, was taken from you because you loved us. You, you gave up your life because you loved us so much. And in doing that, Lord, in doing that, in dying on that cross, in rising again, Lord, it canceled the debt. It canceled the debt of sin in our lives. We can stand before Father God right now, clean because of you, forgiven. So this morning, Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you chose to forgive us through Jesus. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says, forgive others because the Lord has forgiven you. So as you're sitting here this morning, thinking about that grudge that you've held on to, thinking about that person you're really struggling to forgive, maybe having just taken communion and realizing the great price that God paid, that you may be forgiven. That'll help reframe your posture, your your relationship with this person because here's what I believe. You will never find the power and strength to forgive by looking at the person who wronged you. When you look at that person who harmed you, who wronged you, who, who upset you, who made you mad, whatever it is, when you look at that person, it's just gonna bring up all those feelings. You'll never find the power and strength to forgive by looking at the person who wronged you. You will only find the power and strength to forgive by looking at the one who has forgiven you. Some of us this morning are saying, Dave, I'm not sure I can forgive. And I think we need to look to Jesus say, Jesus, I need your help. I need your help to help me forgive this person, to help me forgive, to help me break down this, this spite house that I've allowed to be established in my life to separate me from that person. And it's difficult and it's hard. I understand that, but I think Jesus wants to help us do it. And because it's going to be really difficult and really hard for some of you this morning, I want to close out with this final important point. Let's say, for example, the person who wronged you hurt you financially. I'm just picking that as an example. Maybe they said, you know, um, I, I won't spend this money. I know we're saving this for something. You know, I won't spend it. And then you found out they did actually go out and spend it behind your back. And now you're mad at them. Or maybe you loaned them money and they said, I promise I'll pay you back. And they still haven't paid you back. And you're just mad at them. This grudge has built up. You can choose to forgive that person for what they did and still say no if they ask you to borrow your credit card. If they come back to you and say, hey, can you lend me some more money? You can say no and still forgive them for how they wronged you. I think sometimes as, as followers of Jesus, we get confused on that. We think if we're going to forgive, we've got to then go ahead and, and, and allow that. But there's nothing wrong with, with forgiving and then still creating healthy boundaries to make sure that we're not hurt by that person again. Maybe in your situation, it's not money. Maybe it's something else. But, but there are ways that you can say, I, I'm going to choose for my benefit because this is doing more harm to me than the other person. I'm going to choose for my benefit to forgive But I'm also gonna make sure that that doesn't happen again by creating some healthy boundaries. And you may need some counseling or some counsel to help you in that. You may need to talk to someone to give you some advice on on a healthy way to do that. You may need someone to pray with you, to pray with you and help you understand. Every Sunday, our prayer team are right down here at the... uh, Uh, the end of the service, willing to pray with anyone for anything that might be going on in your lives right now. And maybe this morning, this won't solve everything, but it might be the first step in a journey to help free you from some of that that bitterness that's maybe grown because of that grudge you've held. And you'll come and say, would you just pray with me over this situation? Because I want to learn how how to move away from this. I want to experience emotionally healthy relationships in all of my life, but this just seems to follow me everywhere I go. I believe that Jesus can help us. And I believe if we want to experience those kind of relationships, we've got to be willing to let go of those grudges and choose to forgive. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult topic to talk about, Lord, because... Uh, I'm sure there are many people who can think of examples of this, Lord, and there are many degrees of the examples from a minor infraction to something that's a really, really big thing. But we believe, Lord, your word to be true. We believe, Lord, that you have forgiven us. You've you've canceled a huge debt in our lives. So we want, as followers of you, to, to learn to become as gracious to others as you have been to us. And I recognize, Lord, that for some here this morning, whether in this room or watching online, that's really difficult because of the magnitude of what the, uh, they went through. So God, would you please, please, please help them, Lord, to, to give this to you, to come to you and say, God, this, this may not be resolved overnight, but I want to, to move through this, Lord. I want to understand what it takes to, to knock down. I, d- I don't want to be remembered as the person who built this, this ridiculous spite house in my life. Because God, I believe there is freedom in you. Freedom that can only be found in you. So God, help me get there, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.